Hi, everybody. Janet Sheriff with Mind in America. Today, we have a special guest, Silicon Valley author Anne Bridges, who's talking with us about her knowledge on the mining industry, where we've been, how we got here, and where we're going. Anne, welcome. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you, Janet. Well, I've, I've really been looking forward to this conversation. You and I have been chatting a lot back and forth, but to uh, kind of find a topic about what to talk about. I know our conversations ramble on all kinds of different stuff, but maybe for the benefit of everyone listening, a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm actually a Chicago native that came out to uh, the San Francisco Bay Area to go to college and stuck. Uh, it's a beautiful place and ended up just riding the wave of technology here in Silicon Valley, but in the marketing and the business end, the financial end, and um, was fortunate early in my career to be exposed to what became just kind of a cauldron of different business models, different purposes, different um, personalities involved. And when it got too much for me, um, I left corporate world, started my own business, and that got too much and kind of took some time off and really wanted to share my experiences as actually one of the first women in business out here in Silicon Valley. Um, at that level, uh, we went through an IPO um, and all the other fun things associated with tying into Wall Street at that time. Um, but one of the things that struck me was how more and more Silicon Valley had become a bubble uh, in terms of not paying attention to what had been the foundation of the technologies, um, which had been the Defense Department. Uh, we had a huge military presence in the 70s and 80s during the Cold War, and that ramped down. And instead, we um, leveraged the internet, which then leveraged software. And the whole concept of there being uh, minerals and metals and hardware and manufacturing on which so much of our life um, is reliant at this point seemed to be missing from much of the discussion. The press wasn't talking about it. There seemed to be an obliviousness to the risks associated with having outsourced so much of our manufacturing um, to many countries, but primarily China. And then simultaneously, we had all these immigrants coming from China, from India, around the world, clearly. But you started seeing this shift in attitude and in, um, I'll say, kind of political bent. What what was okay for the government to do or not? How how is globalism good for this country or not? Where are the the lines of these um, countries blurred? Is that good or is that bad? So libertarian very much um, took hold here, but when the Chinese um, embargo happened in 2010 for rare earths i had already decided to start writing a uh, fiction about silicon valley and i was appalled that literally no one was talking about it um, no understanding that if we didn't have rare earths that the computer industry was at risk and that has a ripple effect in all of california our tax base is mostly with coming out of technology these days um, and where California goes, clearly the country goes. And so it was just this void. So my second novel um, on business was called Rare Metal. And it was specifically about how the entire supply chain uh, on a fictional basis was interrupted uh, for the technology industry. So uh, that was my purpose in writing my novels really was just kind of to wake people up. But it launched me all of a sudden into the 
uh, kind of being the face for Silicon Valley on a lot of these issues in the minerals industry. And I hooked up with uh, Dr. Ned Mamula um, and he approached me to write a nonfiction book but that was simple enough for um, a lay person to understand, specifically a lot of Congress people, um, non-academic, uh, but not, non, not fiction either. So we collaborated and came out with groundbreaking. And um, I found so over the last five, six years um, have been talking about these issues ever since, which sadly haven't changed much, that we still have a over-reliance on um, China mainly for our imports and processing of um, the minerals and the metals we need in order to be a successful country. I have read Groundbreaking, and I I, I think everybody should read that book. And, I, and, and there's so many things that we can talk about with, with your work that led you to this. I'm going to summarize it by please first tell everyone where we can find your books. Uh, groundbreaking is available um, wherever you would normally get a book. Amazon, you can order it through Barnes and Noble. It's um, both hard, it's soft cover and ebook. Um, and it, it yes, it, it is still relevant today. It came out in 2018, but I've been amazed as I've looked at it and talked to Ned. Uh, sadly, except for the specifics on you know which mineral proportionality, the grounding that we tried to do was which was to explain to the non-chemists and non-geologists why. Minerals are important, what we're really up against, and how it feeds into so many of the issues today, like green energy re requires more and more minerals. You've probably heard of lithium, um, but you have no idea what that means. If you want to electrify your grid, you need more copper. So there are just some fundamental truths that we tried to tie together in a way that would make it obvious that this was an issue that needed addressing. And and I've I've also spoken with Ned, and we're going to have a conversation on on the podcast in the future with him. Um, I I went down a rabbit hole. Um, I decided when I started this podcast that people need to be educated on on the mining industry, and that you know I'm not going to make I, I'm not going to change the world, but if I could just bring some awareness and education, maybe that leads to some change in a positive way. So I started going into the U.S. Geological Survey's annual uh, mineral reports, mm -hmm. and I, I ended up pulling six decades of reports. I went back to the 50s, <laughs> and because every time I went to another report, I'd start to get more upset. Yeah. And more disturbed by the amount of wealth that we as a country have transferred to other countries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mining uh, production values, the numbers are staggering how much they've reduced since the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. And and the Cold War was another time. Uh, the ending of the Cold War was another transform transformation in the industry. Then I read Groundbreaking. And I realized I could have saved myself uh, months of research <laughs> because you summarized it. And, you know, what little little fact, uh, as an example, 22 critical minerals that we need for defense medicine, uh, our own our own uh, society are 100 percent sourced through other countries, just as an right. example. Right. Right. At least. Mm -hmm. 
and, and it was staggering because this goes into defense. It goes uh, silver, 88% of silver is sourced from another country. We use it in medicine. Um, we use it in hospitals. It's, it, uh, anyway, I, I could I could go on. Uh, I found the book, something everyone should read. And I'm not, I'm not a geologist. Full, full disclosure, married to one. I, I have some theories on how we got here. Um, but I'd like to hear a little bit about you. Like what, what, how did we get here? And, and then we're going to talk about how we, how we go forward. I don't even know how to say how we got here in broad terms. I think that, you know, when China, you need to understand China and a lot of people, frankly, in this country don't, and I have learned it's for a valid reason. So let me just paint it for people who aren't into history because that's kind of my, my second passion, which is in early 1900s, China basically closed down. They kicked out the British and they closed their borders and they, they kind of had their own revolutions. They had problems. Um, we were their ally in World War II, but what, they basically became a communist country and very isolated, which actually over their centuries of civilizations is not atypical for them. But they had famine, they had problems. Um, and when Mao, so this is all under Mao, millions of people starved to death, millions of people died. So when they came out of that in the early 70s, they were this huge country that really needed help. And I think at that point, the U.S. had become the power of the world. We'd won world wars. And I think there was a real effort to say, we can help this country. We can, we can help them grow the same way we had helped Japan, for example, re recover for World War II. And so it seemed very simple to say, well, let's just give some of these simple manufacturing jobs to them. After all, they have these minerals and they can do it easily and cheaply and it will be beneficial for everyone. And I think that... Um, whether there was an intent for it to get as bad as it did, I don't know. But clearly, at the point at which the labor cost was less and China strategically somewhere along the line there had figured out that just like the Middle East had oil and in the 70s, uh, we were reliant on uh, OPEC and the oil output became a very strong negotiating posture politically. Uh, China figured out that they had rare earths, which were very, very key to all the emerging technology. I mean, computers were, were coming along in the 60s. We you know, sent rockets to the moon. So it wasn't that we didn't know that we needed lighter uh, steel or aluminum, et cetera. Um, but they very strategically figured out that if they could just simply say, well, we'll just do it all for you. Just, just bring your manufacturing here. It'll be easier to be cheaper. You don't have to have the know-how. And we just became dependent on them completely to the point where it's so integrated that um, our defense manufacturers, for example, Lockheed and Boeing, they sell to China as well as source from China. So saying, well, you have to stop sourcing from China, they would lose a huge revenue stream. Same thing with Tesla, same thing with Apple. They are selling into this huge um, consumer market and they want to expand into that consumer market and the Chinese customers want to buy American goods. And so the heads of these large corporations, when you, you know, ask them questions, why are you doing this? They go, well, you got to understand we are, we are intertwined at this point. So the question is, do you break those links completely or do you at least come up with a secondary 
redundant supply chain of our own, or at least with some of our closer allies, so that we are not 100% dependent on China, because they have proven, as I've said many times uh, during their civilization, that it just takes one leader who decides that they want to go back into themselves, and they do. Um, they, they are a very strong culture, very strong society uh, internally, and so it's, it's not outside of the realm of, of existence um, for them to do something like that. Americans have a hard time conceiving of that because we weren't taught anything about China. Very few people even had textbooks to read until maybe the 70s. So our generation that grew up 50s, 60s, early 70s, it wasn't part of our curriculum. It, we just weren't aware of it unless we were reading all the newspapers every day. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a, a bit of a, an awareness when I was young. My, my uncle was the press secretary to the prime minister of Canada, uh, Pierre, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And I remember my uncle in the early seventies going to China often. And it was uh, a completely foreign experience, but he would come back and, and he would spend weeks over there. And it was what you're talking about, like helping China get to, to that new place. Mm -hmm. I, I have a question for you in all of this. And, and, um, economics degree. It's my background. I'm not a, an economist. I'm not that bright. Um, did my, my final year paper on uh, Japan as an isolated society, economic and successful economic society. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm aware of what you're talking about. How much do you think where we ended up here was due to the U.S dollar as the global currency. So the U.S. trades in, in treasury bills and has a financial um, product that it puts out and then in return, uh, manufacturing mining is, is what's, it's what's traded. I'm not an economist. I will simply say clearly the U.S. dollar is hopefully still is, but certainly was the dominant currency. And, and for many decades, China, you know, gladly bought up, for example, U.S. debt. Now, from their point of view, they might have said, well, this is a good way for us to now be a creditor um, to the U.S. and, and have that as a geopolitical um, bargaining chip. Um, whether, again, whether that was purposeful, whether that was simply a way to shore up their own uh, banking industry with the yuan, I, I do not know. Um, I think the other element in all this is that commodities are not very well understood. I, um, as he indicated, learned Wall Street and, and the stock market pretty well. Um, and I think out here in Silicon Valley, especially, people understand the stock market. The, the firms are represented here, et cetera. Venture capital is big here. But when you start talking about commodities, it's like a whole new business um, model. The concept of, for example, pulling something out of the ground and putting it in the warehouse until the prices come up, that just doesn't make sense. I've talked to investors who say, well, I, I will invest only in this one portion of the mineral supply chain and I won't do the rest. And that as, a, as an investment choice, that doesn't make sense to a lot of people because here it's like, well, why wouldn't you do as much as you could? And, and it's because the commodities just handle contracts differently and have the ability to affect time um, and, and marketplace, you have to understand Silicon Valley um, has become 
a point where you have uh, product life cycles that are six months. So you're literally talking about a communications gap when you're looking at an industry that takes 20 to 30 years just to get started. By that time, these guys are dead or retired or whatever. Um, so, so you have real mindset clashes between the people who are anxious to get th something done and getting impatient with the fact that they may have to wait decades. They just shrug and say, yeah, never mind. I'll just do whatever I need. Um, so when I've talked to supply chain guys, you know, who have the software that are trying to track down the, um, the sourcing for different items, they admit that it gets to a certain point and then they just shrug because it's too complicated and they can't get valid information out of China, for example, that there's nothing accurate, there's nothing reliable uh, necessarily. So they just go to a vendor that has today's prices on it and that's what they buy. Um, it's very much just in time, just in minute time as opposed to, you know, long-term contract time. Interesting. So speed of speed of uh, fulfillment is a huge issue. I had not yeah. considered that at all. Really, really important. Um, yeah, uh, news to me. Um, <laughs> yeah, one more thing that's interesting. Um, you're talking about some of the other side of mining is the recycling um, portion of it as well. That people think, well, I'll just figure out a way to collect all these um, old PCs and we can fill the, the need that way. But um, the same reason that the um, manufacturers here, the PC manufacturers, for example, want to make sure that they have a reliable source and they're okay with buying it from uh, China, India, whomever. For recycling, they say, well, you tell me when you have five years worth of guaranteed product that you can get to me and I will possibly look at starting to use your your stuff you know your recycled output well for a recycler who's trying to do something new even with the new technology that sounds sexy and wonderful and and earth you know earth friendly five years i mean they're they're running around trying to do something they can get a prototype for 30 days um and and there is no guarantee that they could get recycled products for five years in order to to fulfill the need that a large manufacturing company has to rely on in order to plan their business. So it's a it's an issue, again, of scale. You have the small guys running around trying to do as much as they can, and you have these big manufacturers wanting to make sure that they have a, sec a secure supply of whatever it is. And the only country now that really has been able to step forward and guarantee that has been China, partly because of their resources and at this point, their know-how and their commitment um, to the metal and metallurgy industry. There was a book, I think it was in the 70s, maybe the 60s, that started the whole, we're going to recycle everything in the metals <laughs> industry that was, do you remember the name of it? Name of no, it? I don't. Mm -mm. No. Yeah, it was It was like the beginning of the whole um, unsuccessful move to um, recycle everything. And, and well, I've heard that aluminum, you know, everyone knows aluminum and they point to that. Oh, there's a metal. Aluminum is the single most recyclable um, item. Like you can get 80% use of it. Everything else falls away from that. Um, and right now the cost of gathering recycling is more than the output required. So now we just have landfills filling up with pretty much everything because it's just not cost effective. And in China, is there a cheaper cost of energy that allows this to be more successful for them? Well, now they're building coal plants, so sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Powerhouse, powerhouse. How much, here's a question for you. How much has COVID and the supply chain issues and the Ukraine-Russia war brought awareness to the need to have domestic supplies? Absolutely huge. I mean, I so groundbreaking came out in 2018 and no one was talking about supply chain. Um, COVID hit and all of a sudden in February 2020, um, people were, you know, running out of toilet paper, and and the whole concept that you had to worry about something in advance. So then everyone stocked up, and then we were, you know, short of shelves because everyone had their own at home. So I think for the first time, the average consumer understood that things didn't just happen magically, and it wasn't necessarily big bad corporations' fault. Um, it could be that another country locked down, right? At that point, the whole concept that a country would just simply stop shipping. Um, the, the libertarians here in Silicon Valley just literally had a hard time getting their brain wrapped around that because they always looked at it and said, well, for the right price, anyone will do, well, you, you know, you can get anything. Well, that wasn't true during COVID, right? And during a war, as much as you may want to, there may be restrictions, a bridge may be blown up, whatever the case may be. You cannot, you cannot transcend like you can on the internet in virtual, you cannot transcend the physical realities of logistics. And that discussion and, and young entrepreneurs are really jumping in with both feet trying to solve this problem because they see an opportunity, which I think is great, um, but it still hasn't really affected the sourcing of so much of our product, which is still the minerals and the metals and the know-how to turn those minerals into metals, into product. Now, um, I ended up in a roundabout way in the mining industry. Um, it wasn't a, a, a career I knew anything about. It wasn't a career I uh, I came to through my education. I, I came in through a, a, a very unusual path. Uh, but I, I think it's the most fabulous industry in the world. It's the source of all the creation of wealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back to Roman times. It, 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 you don't build a strong economy without uh, mining what you need to to operate as a society. Mm-hmm. So that, a lot of that's why we we have these discussions. So how do how do we go forward? How do we um, educate and start building an industry that has serious uh, timeline issues? Uh, permitting in the U.S. is is for a conventional mine is is seven to ten years. Um, and that's after you spend a significant amount of capital uh, defining a resource, for example. So then you go into construction. How do we advance this to our benefit? Well, I think we need to attack this simultaneously on a number of fronts. Um, one is attitudinally, and I just point this out because it was mind blowing to me. Um, the Chinese have what we have four elements when we look at life it's fire, air, water, and earth. They look at it with five, and the fifth is metal. 
basically they look at earth as it supplies plant life but it all and so when you take your vitamins and minerals right we all know that we take calcium we take zinc we you know we look at these things they're part of our discussions but they also see that one of the the values of life one of the foundations of civilization is metal that you can take out of that same earth and now create a human-based tool um, so part of that is just mindset. If we can just think like they do in that emphasis, I think that will help people a lot see that we're not trying to ruin air. We're not trying to ruin, you know, rape Mother Earth, which is the words that the environmentalists use. We are trying to utilize the components of Earth beyond just plant life to the metals and minerals that really sustain human life at this point. And more than just human life, you know, we can't protect the salmon and the birds, if we're not also protecting them with the machinery that we are using these days, the, the medical devices to monitor. I mean, there's everything that we use. So that's one. The second simultaneous we need to do is to um, encourage more education, uh, more universities to start um, offering not only geology, but, but metallurgy. I've talked about that a lot. Um, the phrase really means converting the stockpiles of minerals that the DOD, the Pentagon is so proud of saying they have to the metals, the advanced metals that we need today. This is not something simple. This, this is advanced chemistry. This is understanding where you can source them. This is understanding again, where you can have a supply um, that you can count on pulling from and all the applications. So mining minerals, mining, metals, metallurgy, all to create the products that we need. Um, so there needs to be an emphasis on that. And for example, out here at Stanford, they just endowed, one of the venture capitalists um, endowed a huge amount of money, I, don't, I think like a billion dollars to Stanford for a sustainability department, which is great. Um, they rolled geology under that, which is okay. The question I have is whether or not they are going to really pay attention to the geological part or whether this is really just going to be um, another environmental activist protect the environment as opposed to utilize it. So th those are the kinds of issues. And then obviously, if you can do anything from a regulatory uh, governmental standpoint to uh, really slash and burn all the things that are getting in the way. And time is money. I mean, from a, an investment point of view, if I have $10 to invest and I can get a dollar back in a week or I can get a dollar back in 10 years, any you know, logical person will say, I'll take a dollar back in a week and I'll have $11. Well, that's exactly what investors are saying. They There's no reason to wait 20 years. Um, and that's why you have these global conglomerates who really are dominating the, the mining industry because they're really the only ones with the resources and the know-how to be able to weather um, this kind of multi-decade um, permitting process. I'm going to add a, another, uh, another option to get us going, but I want to talk first about the metallurgy issue because I ran a gold company and I had visible gold uh, at surface and near surface. And uh, the typical model is that drill and finance, drill and finance. And I didn't like that model. I actually came into the sector thinking that that didn't make a lot of sense. When I can see the gold, if I can't get it out of the ground, drilling to prove up a resource is irrelevant. So we went a whole different route where we established the metallurgy. And, and then we determined uh, how to get the gold out of the rocks, 
before we got into an aggressive drill program, which was completely mm -hmm. counterintuitive. Um, I wasn't too popular at times, but um, I'm happy with I'm happy with me. But that leads me to the fourth thing I think we need. I think we need new technology in the sector. And there has not been um, an appetite for it from my experience. Um, it, but we need to see funding sources and we need to see the industry, the big companies looking at new technology. I don't know how you feel about that. I, I agree. I mean, when we're talking about it, like I said, advanced chemistry, for example, um, I think the biotech industry sucked up a lot of chemists over the last uh, few decades with the uh, discovery of DNA and then gene splicing, et cetera. And so the pharmaceutical industry has been the hot place to go for anyone who's in, into chemistry. Um, I I have been paying attention to some of the advancements utilizing technology in the mining sector. And I've been amazed at some of the uh, advances that have been made, not just in, in mining itself being cleaner and safer and more efficient. And it, it's, you know, they're some of the earliest um, users of some of the, you know, like green technology, the, the batteries, the solar you know, what everything, because they're in such remote locations and yet they're running businesses just, you know, with, with hundreds of people on site. So, so part of it is the mining industry being proud of itself and being able to try to attract technologists and chemists into their need, into solving the problem that we all want solved. And it may just be a matter of telling the right story um, or getting the, the current generation to understand how important it is. W one guy I talked to years ago, I said, I was asking similar questions. How do we wake the average consumer up? And he said his favorite story was a guy would go into like, you know, parents day at, at a school, grade school, junior high school, and he'd have a big hefty bag with him. And he'd say, okay, we're going to put in this bag everything that is mined, right? Well, once he had the kids almost stripped down to their underwear, right? Because between yeah. <laughs> between everything they owned, which included smartphones and pencils and pens, and it po he pointed out that, of course, their their clothes were manufactured using machines, which means really it included that. What that got their attention, they went, "Oh, okay, we can't just shrug and say it's not important. Uh, we do need to at least recognize that that is a part of our life that we are relying on and we want to continue to rely on. So those kinds of shock stories, I think, need to be out there. Um, and I think the the industry, the, the mining industry magazines probably need to do better outreach to the rest of the media so that the information that's coming out is not just regurgitated stories all the time with old pictures um, that show, you know, slash and burn sites that are from 50 years ago, 70 years ago, that would never be used today, but that's what they, they those are the pictures that are in the, the standard um, photojournalist shop. And so that's what they use. So don't preach to the converted, reach out to the people that, that yeah, I get, yeah, I get it, I get it. What, what's the saying? If it's not mine. If it's not grown, it's mined. There you mm -hmm. go. That's the yeah. same looking for. And, you know, I need to give some credit where credit's due. There is new technology coming. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's being shared broadly. And I and I think, I don't know if you agree with me, sometimes the mining industry, um, in order for self-preservation, has taken a bit of a duck and cover model. Uh, just don't want any attention drawn to itself because it's so difficult with the regulatory regime. And I, I think they need to, we need to start 
really promoting the advances that we've made. And the one that I'm, I'm thinking of that I think is a real example of a great game changer is, is small modular reactors. Mm -hmm. If you can create a, a small modular reactor that can um, power a remote lead zinc operation somewhere in North America, um, your capital and operating costs go down um, and the, the um, value to the consumer is, is higher. You're not, it's not as expensive. So I, I don't know how you feel about, about that, but I, I, I see those types of examples very quietly moving forward. Well, that's interesting because in, in some respects, so the, the defense industry is the um, ultimate buyer of really the really advanced technology. But what you're describing is, an, is a different business model. It's saying, let's apply the most advanced energy systems to make the extractive industry not only more cost effective, but safer and broader, and 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 you know what, what, what everything else that goes on with SMRs, um, different locales. The ultimate benefit is not just the DoD then, but but it also becomes an industry then that can use some of this advanced technology without having to go through the DoD because you know the the procurement processing for anything that's defense related is even crazier than than standard, and yet they've become the de facto purchaser. Um, of a lot of the mineral output simply because they're there and they need it and they want it. And, and so everyone ends up running to the Defense Department as, as opposed to what you've got out here in Silicon Valley, where it was all private, all open, all shared, and everyone just learned from each other on the fly very, very quickly, which is why the technology industry um, took off in the last 30 years so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 jumping around a little bit, let's bring some refinery uh, and smelting back. Um, it always amazed me that the option was to send rocks over, have them processed and then send back the product. There must be some economies of scale in, in reestablishing them in North America. I would hope so. Um, and I I think what's sad, no one wants to say that, you know, um, MP Materials, for example, in Southern California, reluctantly acknowledges that much of their output still goes to China. They're building a new refinery, I believe, and processing for high about for um, rare earths in Texas. But it's not for all rare earths. Rare earths are there are 17 of them and it only works for some of them. And you know, it, it you've got to You've got to learn to understand how to kind of parse the language, which is sad in in some respects because they should be able to say it and have have you know be proud of what they're doing. We're only doing two of the seventeen, but that that's not sexy enough. That's not what the investors want to hear. That's not what the media will pick up. And so you kind of sell what you can um, and hope that <laughs> you don't get nailed by the the SEC or whomever who's watching every word you say when you're a public company. Um. Well, I don't, I don't think we're going to uh, change the world in this one conversation, but I do think that you have very eloquently helped with some awareness and education on the issues. And, and, and for that, I, I thank you um, a great deal, Anne. Well, thank you very much for that compliment. I have to give Ned a lot of credit. He's, you know, that research 
that you did that you could have saved yourself on. He did the heavy lifting. He's got an entire career um, in, I think he's, he's an economic geologist, which means he understands the, that wealth creation. Um, and I really just toned down, toned down some of his stuff, um, recognizing the consumer trying, you know, try, consumer element trying to read this. But to me, it was a huge learning experience. I mean, that, that thing with the five elements versus four elements just happened. I was hiking, I was hiking with a friend of mine on a trail and we were just talking about the elements and she said five. I said, no, there are four. She's Chinese. And and we literally just stopped dead on the trail and we we're comparing notes. And I went, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no so idea. sometimes it's those, those kinds of chance encounters that really wake you up to the, we do have different perceptions as a culture on what we're going to respect and do and how to do that. I was taught, I worked uh, predominantly in the indigenous community doing community-based economic development work mm -hmm. before I went into mining at their request. And um, I was taught that um, creator gives you what you need. It, it provides mother earth and, and all, and all the bounty and wealth that she can provide. You just responsibly manage it. Mm -hmm. And I, I have taken that to apply to how you manage the hunt uh, when you are feeding your community to how you extract metals. It's, mm -hmm. it's, um, the gifts are all given to us. They are. And I think if we don't look at it responsibly in advance, it's very easy to just ignore what's happening. I mean, you have deep sea mining now being the next sexy thing or, or asteroid mining. Oh, if we, if we can't get the permissions on land, let's go into international waters. Let's go into outer space. That's crazy. Right. Yeah, that's really, that's really, that's really what's <laughs> motivating it. Yeah. Right. Um, but then you, I have some geologist friends and we were talking about the volcano that exploded in um, Tonga Tonga mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And they said, well, we don't ever do anything underwater. And I'm like, well, we've got these huge resources of these, under, un, these underwater volcanoes. What geologists are studying them? I mean, gosh, this is how islands are formed. This is this is major stuff. If we can figure out how to tap it, and they're like, oh no, we don't do that. So now you have the people who study water, right? Don't understand earth geology, and the people who understand earth don't understand how to get it in the water. So you've got a whole new kind of learning curve in order to solve the same issue, which is how can we responsibly tap the um, minerals we need in order to sustain life across the board. Fascinating, Ann. Um, we, we could keep going, but um, I would like you to tell people how to find you on social media and uh, on, on the internet. Sure. Um, probably the easiest way is just to do a search Silicon Valley author Ann Bridges. I'm the only one. I'm on Twitter. Um, I have my own website and I have a number of fictional books and some nonfiction um, all on Amazon. Um, that's probably the easiest way to do it. That's how people find me. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to continued conversations. My head's kind of hurting right now dealing with all of the uh, the facts <laughs> you're throwing out here. But, but thank you for joining us and thank you everyone for joining us. Um, it, it Mining is in my opinion, the, the greatest industry a, a country could hope for. So thank you, Anne. You're welcome. Thank you. And I will say it's also one of the original industries. Otherwise, we'd be back in the Stone Age. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> Everyone have a great day and we'll see you next time.